Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Daily Objective. And uh, today we're going to be taking sort of a stroll down memory lane for the co-host and I. We both uh, at one point were in a very different place philosophically than we are today. Uh, today we're both, uh, I think, serious students of Ayn Rand's philosophy, objectivism. And where we were beforehand, I think can both be sort of conceptualized as the left, but uh, I'm a real piece of Americana, like the place I was, I think you could definitely describe as the new left and very much like influenced by the sort of American experience, the American uh, developments in philosophy. Whereas my co-host, he was kind of a card carrying uh, hammer and sickle communist straight up uh, from the mean streets of Greece evidently a communist uh, neighborhood, but we're going to learn a lot about him and a little bit maybe about me as well. I want to um, ask as no, well. The other way around. Please, uh, I'll, I'll, we'll, get to, we'll get to your wisecracks in a moment when we're done with my introduction. I want to ask as well, um, should people be forgiven for their past, um, you know, for their past convictions, for their past beliefs, for what it is, where they stood, if it was uh, sort of, very irrational. Should they be forgiven? I think the answer is yes in my case and no in the co-host case, but we'll, we'll get into that and find out. Uh, please welcome the uh, resident wisecrack peanut gallery, former communist, Nikos Sotirakopoulos. I forgot how to yeah, pronounce it. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I've done a whole episode about my journey, so I'm more yeah. interested in what you have to say, but also that question on, so are you, quote, forgiven? And also, what does this story have to tell us about people who are currently somewhere else politically and how you can, if there's any hope of reaching out to them, how to reach out to them and all that stuff. So this is okay. not basically just sharing a story, but drawing conclusions from it. And what was your uh, point when you said the opposite a minute ago? When that you you're going to say more about your path because I've never heard actually your story. So I don't, I don't, I'm more interested in that. Yeah, so I guess uh, we can. I can sort of share some of my uh, experiences. So I, I have come to sort of see my development as sort of analogous to the kind of modern of uh, the modern philosophy, if you like. Um, you know, there was kind of this rejection of religion uh, that is sort of analogous to the Enlightenment, um, even if the Enlightenment wasn't perfectly rejecting religion. I think, for all practical purposes and all meaningful purposes, they did reject religion. They, they definitely put God in the back seat, if not pushed him completely out the window. And but that, of course, uh, without a good method made way for skepticism, uncertainty, nihilism enters in. And before you know it, kind of shrugging like uh, maybe uh, authoritarianism isn't so bad. I mean, uh, we're all guilty. So basically, like just I mean, it's a, one of the many fascinating things about reading Rand and Peikoff is that they point out like when you reject religion, but you don't reject the premises. And this, of course, is true of many philosophers. They they're ardent atheists, but they hold on to altruism like it's still this unquestioned moral premise or just the epistemological uh, kind of uh, method of religion, let's say that faith or emotions or whatever your subconscious sends up to you is truth, let's say. Or I think uh, sort of looking at skepticism um, clarifies this is that 
religious people and many skeptics agree that there's no certainty without God. So the skeptics say, well, so there's no certainty because there is no God. And then the religious people says, say, well, there is certainty, both when it comes to knowledge and morality, there is certainty because we have God to give us this universal a sort of compass to follow. Um, so like many, I think like many people and certainly like, I think history itself was like, uh, the rejection of religion without a good, healthy epistemology and ethics made way for skepticism, nihilism, and before you know it, a very, very bloody authoritarian uh, wave sweeping across Europe and could have maybe swept across North America as well if uh, things had gone a little bit differently. And um, I, although obviously I was never dictator and I was never um, in charge and never lent my uh, efforts or treasure to any dictatorship. But I know internally where I was going as a teenager and before reading Ayn Rand, where I was going internally, mentally, I was sort of going there. I was kind of like, yeah, we're all guilty. We're all ruining the planet and we're all stabbing each other in the back. You know, capitalism means somebody is getting screwed. That was the way I saw it. So everything's zero sum. So to the degree Americans are prosperous means that people in the third world must be getting screwed in order for that to be the case. So in all these ways, and of course, why stop at, you know, human on human crime? We're guilty of slaughtering millions and millions of animals. So we're all Nazis the way I saw it. Like we're all basically uh, living, uh, we're joyfully eating the flesh of our, you know, biological distant relatives and treating them the way that the Nazis treated their prisoners. So this is the kind of internally, I, I became this, um, this kind of skeptic turned nihilist turned basically someone willing to kind of hand it all over to an authoritarian. So like sympathetic to communism, although I wouldn't quite, let's say, commit to that. I was too much of an American. You know, I was too disintegrated, you know, let's say a, a, a communist in the morning and sort of uh, in the afternoon comparing you know, Nazis to, um, to just anyone who eats meat. And then in the evening, just a complete environmentalist, nihilist, ready to see the whole world burn down. And then maybe, and then maybe uh, after dinner, a capitalist, you know, maybe kind of a libertarian. Like, yeah, you know what? Libertarianism would, would actually make most sense. You know, give me liberty, you know, let me smoke my drugs. And um, what else is it? Like economic activity and all that, like economic freedom. Yeah, sure. But when you, when you uh, embrace free market libertarianism and you're that much of an incoherent nut what's it really worth how how long is it going to last and you can see i think uh this is kind of me uh stepping outside my own story and kind of pointing the finger out i can i can see a lot of people who are, were at one point sort of anarchists slash libertarians have become pretty uh pretty cozy with statism if it means quote beating the left so uh you know that should tell you what's um, unprincipled, unphilosophical free market allies are actually good for. Not so very let's much. take a step back, though, from what you said. So do you yeah. think that this flirting with the left was more of a remorse in terms of, let's say, you don't you, you, you want to take it to the world, to take it on the world that you hate the world and you want to see it go to flames? So were you more of a Pavel Sierov or an Andrei Taganov? So were you were you genuinely worried about inequalities or that actually the environment is going really bad and we have to do something? Or do you think it was more a reaction that I don't like the world and I want to rule it or I want to see it burn? 
And can you even make this distinction? Because, for example, when I go back to my early days, I still cannot make this distinction in my mind. Was it hatred for the world or a higher vision? I think it was frustration. It was adolescent uh, frustration and jealousy, envy. Uh, I was seeing people succeed, you know, being successful. And I did, I felt impotent to try my hand at it. I was addicted to, you know, marijuana and trying my hand at a lot of other stuff and just generally felt very um, inadequate. So, I mean, that's definitely one aspect of it. But uh, along with that came the lack of philosophical um, help. There was, you know, there was no, um, you know, until I read Ayn Rand, there, there was, there was just this kind of, these kind of like influences saying like around me saying like, yeah, you've got religion or you've got complete skepticism, which, you know, kind of makes way for all types of horrors and stuff. And I knew religion pissed me off way too much uh, for me to, to be religious. So I'm going with whatever, wherever this journey takes me. Um, as far as environmentalism, was it genuine concern? No. Well, it was more honest than most environmentalists because most environmentalists, they, uh, they say they're doing this for the future generations and for the betterment of human life, basically, like they want to um, prolong any catastrophe, right? They're, they're, they're saving us. I was actually an environmentalist on behalf of the trees, on behalf of the animals, on behalf of the fungus. So to me, humans were actually the problem. And so in that respect, I was more honest than most environmentalists, or I shouldn't say more honest, because I don't know where many, I guess many of them are honest. They honestly think they're doing what's best for people. But I was actually explicitly anti-human. So uh, I was like the, the professor quoted in one of the, the, those objectivist nonfiction books saying, until humans decide to rejoin nature, we can just hope uh, the right virus comes along. Do you remember that quote? Um, but, uh, but that's what, a real. But, but, that's but a was real I was I doing? But let me say, was I doing anything? Uh, acting on these convictions? Of course not. I was enjoying the lavish life uh, of the modern world and enjoying uh, living very uh, gluttonously. I guess is the word hedonistically. So uh, just like the Germans in the Weimar Republic, you know, there as Peikoff describes in the ominous parallels, they were cashing their royalty checks while you know condemning the modern world. I mean, I, I'm I just remember them. They were cashing their royalty checks. Uh, while, you know, talking about rejecting uh, the modern world. Sorry, you had, you had something. No, no, I was, uh, I was just trying to think if it's even possible to, in retrospect, to see why we, why we did these things. For, so for me, it started in a way that I was angry with the world, that the world is an unjust place. Throw in the mix a bit of Christianity. So just before communism, it was the Christian thing that, you know, the poor is going are going to what's the the usual thing you know they're gonna get the earth so if i was the caricature that nietzsche made the criticism of christianity that it's basically weak characters weak people who cannot cope with the world and they need a coping mechanism i'm paraphrasing of course and this coping mechanism is christianity so that was a that was a bit of a an early flirtation but then i was super pissed off also with christianity because i was like Okay, I'm, I've asked God for some things, or I've uh, won some things, and they didn't happen. Therefore, how dare he? Therefore, you know, screw this guy, or he doesn't exist, or if he exists, I hate him. By the way, I, I always remembered, if you watch the Coppola's Dracula, which is, by the way, is a brilliant, in some ways, film, in the beginning, Dracula is pissed off, and he says something like, 
God something, therefore I denounce him or something like that. And he attacks with a sword the, the cross. And I found it, oh yeah, that's a true rebellion. Like there might be a God, but because he's not doing the things that we want him to do, we should defy him. What's the best way to defy him? Let's be a, an atheist. So this atheism was not a conscious atheist that there is no God. It was more like, okay, we need to defy him and we need to revolt against everything, including God. And what was the obvious, let's say, outlet? Uh, communism. Now, this also had to do with the family environments and also with the political climate of the time. It was the bombings in Yugoslavia, the bombings in Serbia by Clinton and NATO, the humanitarian, in quote, intervention. So I was like, okay, uh, the world is unjust. And who are the good guys? Who are out there protesting with red flags? Oh, the communists. Mm. And I see, wasn't my mother like a communist? Oh, there are some books. Let me read them. And then I start reading these books. They talk about this country that doesn't exist anymore, Soviet Union, but how beautiful it was. You know, everyone was, no one was hating anyone. Everyone was good to each other. So it's like, that's a no brainer. That's the way, that's the way to go. So it started as lashing out in a way to the world. And again, was this idealism or was this nihilism trying to find an avenue? I'll have to do a lot of introspection to, to, give, to give an answer, but this is how it started. And then for years, it was jumping from one sort of collectivism to the other. So literally one week, I would say I'm a Trotskyist. I would go to the center of Athens, which was the equivalent of Facebook. You know, today you find obscure Facebook groups. Back in the day, you'd go to the center of the town. You'd find this one kiosk that would sell some weird magazines or some weird newspapers. I would buy the newspaper of the Trotskyist or the newspaper of the Marxist-Leninist, I mean, the small parties. Of course, it was also the Communist Party. So I would kind of jump around and choose. Also, when you are not very, when you are kind of a, you know, the, when you don't feel, when you don't have self-esteem, you want someone to lead you. So I was also kind of captivated by the idea of great men. So that's why I'm saying, I think it's a coincidence that I didn't end up, I don't know, a nationalist or a fascist or God knows, God knows what. Because it was this idea that, oh, yes, we find power through, through kind of numbers, through the masses. That's why I remember in the first year of the university, I was captivated by figures like Napoleon or Byzantine emperors. So it's, it was all this mix of someone who has zero idea who he is, what he wants in life but he finds figures or movements that help him kind of revolt against, in a way, himself and reality and leave this grandeur kind of vision that he had through himself by the idea of the mass movement, we are going to show them, or, well, you know, how cool would it be to have an emperor? And so it, it was a complete, it was a complete and absolute mess. I would say at least till... 2004, when I was 21, when I said, okay, Marxism, Leninism is the thing, you have to get a bit more serious on that. Yeah, so that's interesting to me, because I, I introduced you at the start of the show as sort of like this strict card-carrying communist, so as opposed to me, the flaky American disintegrated uh, hippie thinker all over the place. Uh, it sounds like you also were kind of um, going through these various state motions. And ultimately, these are superficial differences when you look at fundamentals. So they all have altruism in common. In some way, the individual is handing it all over to the collective. 
something something higher than his own life. Um, and they all kind of rely on a certain type of individual skepticism. So you, the individual, cannot understand things good enough on your own, I suppose. Or you have to. Mm -hmm. everyone else cannot, but you can, and therefore you have to rule. Yeah, someone needs to be the ruler. Now, Ayn Rand in the Fountainhead, or maybe in a Fountainhead, as well as in, in interviews, I think she said, like, whoever speaks of masters and slaves or rulers and subjects intends to rule. And um, do you think that's true? I've always struggled with that. It, it seems like a very big generalization. Don't some people want to be ruled when they speak in those terms or, or do they just kind of go with the flow? Um, or maybe that's, that's a big question to throw at you. That's but. a very big question. So, mm -hmm. so two years after that, when I was 22 or 23, I joined the communist youth and I was a, an exemplar member of the communist youth. I was volunteer to, any, to everything. I wasn't a, you know, I didn't want to rise up. I was very happy to quote serve the the party. In some ways, I can see some similarities with, you know, my objectivist uh, route. Because at the end of the day, you're talking about the same, the same person. So I, that's another question that I cannot answer. If I mm -hmm. actually wanted to rule, or if I said, okay, now you do the thinking about me. Now you do the thinking for me, which is big. Because the Communist Party is not like a left-wing sect where everyone does whatever they want. They have the Leninist, they still have officially the Leninist structure, which is when the leadership makes a decision, you have to follow. Now, very soon, or not very soon, but within two years, there were issues that I was not happy with that. So at some point, this idea that I want to be led crashed with reality. So I had a big disappointment on some politics, political issues that make there no context to explain. Now there's no point. And then at some point this became permanent that these people are not the real deal. But notice you don't question your premises. You're questioning the people. So you're saying the ideology is still good. We still need an armed revolution, a violent revolution, if it has to be. I mean, I never liked violence, but I was like, well, yeah, if it gets to that. I still thought that I knew better than everyone else or the people and the people I want to follow know better. So now the question was, it's not the Communist Party. So who is who is going to do the thinking for me? And then I started exploring you know, people in the new left or Marxists beyond the Marx and Lenin. Like uh, I was excited with Zizek at some point, obviously. So it was like, okay, basically I need a new master. So this is, this is a phrase by Jacques Lacan, the psychoanalyst. He was pissed off with the May 68 students the, in the May 68 revolt in Paris. And he, his famous line was, you, all you want is a new master, you're going to find one. So that was my attitude after the Communist Party. But again, I cannot tell clearly if it was nihilism against the world. And I have the suspicion it was because at some point I even flirted with environmentalism. It didn't last long, but there was a flirtation there. So in retrospect, it could very well be anything that attacks this world, this world of achievement, this world of where people can be happy, as opposed to me, because particularly in retrospect, I was not happy. Anything that can attack this, give it, give it a go. So it took a lot of time to start realizing that, okay, maybe... You know, it's good to have freedom. It's good to, of course, capitalism is bad, but at least we want to make a change for the better. So up to a point in my mid-20s, I think it was 
nihilism for nihilism sake if you dig deep if you really dig deep and the moment i figured this out and i'll end this uh, rant with this was in the athens riot of 2008 so i had left the communist party or i was about to leave it because it did not participate in the riots to its credit and part of the riots was they destroyed also part of my father's office in athens the the entrance and i felt good not good because of you know i love my father but good that now i could say look i also suffered so no one can point the finger to me that you didn't suffer remember eugene lawson the banker with a heart in atlas rag says no one can uh, no one can uh, blame me that i ever made the profit so what did people always tell me oh you are rich how can you be a communist and i was like i've also suffered like my father's office is broken in retrospect this was like this was a low point of nihilism like it cannot be that someone is led by values and can have such a such a dark uh, thought yeah wow that's uh that's really interesting uh i i i thought we had uh there's so much we don't have in common but it turns out uh we had more in common than i thought um in terms of like this sort of uh conflict uh inner conflict and also not being kind of not being uh, entirely sure like how much of this is nihilism and how much of this is very misguided idealism um you know we we spoke about um people wanting to rule and uh you know if no one else get it the little people can't think for themselves so i need to think for them and then and then you know enter authoritarianism you know there was a part of the fountainhead that struck me that not that many people talk about a lot of people you know talk about how much the fountainhead like put into words what it is that they had felt for so long the one of the parts of the fountainhead that really struck me was elsworth tuhi saying remember the roman emperor that said he wished all of humanity had one neck so that he could cut it off people laughed at him for centuries but we figured out a way to do it I think that's a pretty close paraphrasing right there from memory. That struck me. And at the time I was reading this, I still wasn't really clear what I was reading is 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 Keating the good guy, is Rourke the good right like by, the, by by that part of the book I knew Rourke was the good guy, but there was a I mean that book, you know, it gives you a lot at once to to chew on. And reading that from Tui like made me realize like yeah, this has been my mindset like this this feeling of inadequacy and envy has led me to just kind of wish I could just end the whole world like it's not enough for me to uh exit I want to take the whole world with me um so that was really I mean that was really fascinating for me to read at the time and to kind of revisit now and we spoke about um so but wait a minute what ahead. do you think saved you quote saved you from that what was your exit from this dark premise of of nihilism I mean I think reading the fountain had really did it you know this character of Howard Rourke so the, the power that art holds to kind of show you a person a a concrete person and and the way this person functions um it showed Hoping me the like the question doesn't sound too cheesy I mean please. what was there something inside you that you think it was always the, already there and this is what helped you from because you could very easily read the fountain and said okay what what's that this crap and throw it away Yeah, I mean, I think there was something like uh even in my most nihilistic phase before reading The Fountainhead, I w- I wanted to make music, I wanted to kind of write and produce uh sort of art and entertainment that kind of gave voice to these this sort of views. I wanted to do, I wanted it to be good. So I was never like this gross hippie uh musician or gross hippie kind of um 
uh, type of person who just hangs out, smells bad, and and just kind of plays the sound of traffic and calls that music. Like I always, I had great appreciation for like very, very advanced level, like rock bands and very, uh, um, you know, very well done movies and stuff. So um, I always had an appreciation and, and a real, a real passion for, for things that uh, I was not willing to give up. So ultimately that, um, that dedication, that kind of uh, love for, for life or, or for certain things made me uh, continue to search and to, and then, you know, reading Howard Rourke, although architecture was never even in my vocabulary, reading about Rourke's dedication to his architecture and the way he deals with the people around him uh, definitely kind of recalibrated things, I think, in a certain, in a certain way. And contrasting Rourke with Tuhi uh, definitely kind of showed, like, kind of put things into focus for me. But I mean, this is, yeah, I mean, this is rich. This is deep. I mean, I could, I could, I could go on and on for days, but um, the... Part of, again, about rulers and the ruled. Um, and when Rand said, like, whoever speaks of rulers and subjects plans to rule. I think she said something like that. And I was asking earlier, like, did she mean that literally? And there, there are some quotes by her or things she has said where at times I think it might be sort of meant poetically, not necessarily as like a blanket rule that's always going to be true. Um, and... You know, she. I've been talking a little bit to you and on this channel about Nietzsche uh, that I've been reading. Thus spoke Zarathustra, which to me is like, it's incredible, like reading this. And it's taking me back to where I was before reading The Fountainhead. And I mean, Nietzsche's like my new favorite author right now. Um, and what's interesting is like, so like Rand, she escaped from communism, like the real deal, the real communism. She passed through Germany in more ways than one. That's deep. That's 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 pretty right. She passed through Germany in more ways than one. And just in in like that, she was a Nietzsche fan. Um, and at one point called Thus Spoke Zarathustra her Bible, which when I first heard that, I mean, she said she said that in an interview, which you can always, you know, people always kind of speak uh, in a way that should they, they wouldn't want you to quote forever. But she did say that at one point, And I don't know if she meant like she agrees with it or just that it speaks to her soul because so much about Nietzsche just kind of speaks to me. And, and I don't know, oh, even with Nietzsche now, I'm not sure how much of it he meant literally uh, or just how much he was just saying like, this should be your, how your soul kind of uh, interacts with the world or something like that. There's, it's, it just seems very deep um, to me. So um, there's no, there's no fully, arriving at a good philosophy like objectivism, I think, unless your soul kind of is on this quest. So unless art is involved, unless your very personal values are at stake, I think, I think your, um, your approach to something like objectivism is going to be superficial without those things. It's, and you're, it's going to be fleeting. And like you said, some people, they're going to read The Fountainhead. It won't speak to their values. They won't quite see the significance of it and maybe they'll like it but they'll, they'll sort of move on and and put it away so with Zarathustra two things first of all I think there's no way you can have a passion for life and values and all the things that it has to offer and this vision and that you are not going to be moved by Zarathustra it's it's particularly the opening sections are they they have something which is grandiose and I can totally understand how Rand liked it, obviously. However, at the same time, you have to be, how's the, what's, the, what's the quote? The student has to be ready for the teacher. So I started reading Zarathustra in 2004. 
it taught, it spoke nothing to me. It was as if I was reading Chinese. That's the Greek for what you people say. That sounds yeah, Greek to it's me. Greek to me, and it's Chinese to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it it did nothing to me, and I left it aside. So and now I I started rereading Zarathustra during my deep into my uh, run objectivist uh, period, so to speak, and I was overwhelmed. And of course, one day we could do a whole episode. Uh, Randian themes in Zarathustra, and again, as a game, as a, as like curiosity to see what we think. Not that this is like an official take or or something, because we are not experts in Rand, and definitely I'm not experts in Nietzsche. And but it's very interesting to see things that are almost, you could say, at least on a superficial level, almost similar and almost uh, and almost the same. So. But again, if if I had started reading Nietzsche, where my whole worldview was envy, uh, nihilism, and uh, I want to, I want, I, I want to, I hate this world, it wouldn't do anything to me. As indeed, it did anything. It did nothing to me when I started reading. Yeah, it all it all does depend kind of where you're at. Of course, there is such a thing as being way too young to read something. <laughs> so. Uh... You know, someone gives you the fountainhead when you're 12. You know, I think most of it's going over your head. No, I was 21. But the thing yeah. is, how old I was in my sen- in my view, in my mindset, and in my worldview. That was the biggest problem. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay, uh, let's jump over to super chats, shall we? Um, Jonathan Honig with 99 cents. Thank you for that. Marilyn with two dollars says cool. Um, Hugh James with 179 pounds says. May you punch left at the left, always, uh, says Ben Kenobi. I don't think that's a real quote, but uh, thank you for that. Robert with $2 says, no question, just soapboxing. Then Robert again with $2 says, no, I haven't voted them since 1996. Obey my dog. Then again, Robert with $5 says, I left the left too, long ago, and hope to find political allies, as the expression goes, all dressed up with no place to go. Mary Lean with $2 says, I wish I had voted for Al Gore. Can't disagree with that. I mean, George Bush was a disaster. And, uh, you know, even if you if, if someone out there is an apologist for that uh, schnook, uh, no question he gave us Obama. That Even God Emperor Trump himself has made that observation. Whatever you think of Bush, he gave us Obama. Well, there you go. If you like Bush, you must love Obama. I mean, I'm, I'm being a little bit loose. Let me get back to the Super Chats. Wes, with $10 American, says, for me, reading objectivist literature made me realize how much I was just floating through life. I couldn't escape that I was on the left by default, not by any explicit values I could understand. And then let, me, let me make a comment on this super chat. So this time lapse between I changed my political views to I changed my philosophy to this philosophy can actually have an effect in my life this this time lag could be almost a decade. So you can change, let's say, political views. You can say, okay, or economic views. Marx was wrong. Liber- Austrian economics are right, but still we're altruists. Then you can say, okay, forget communism. We are laissez-faire capitalists. And there's this individual instinct, which is okay. Then you can go to, okay, I'm, I'm a I call myself an objectivist and still all these things could have almost zero effect in your, on your own life, in how you deal with people, in how you view your career, in how you view your romantic life and with how we view yourself. If you even 
view yourself. So it took me, I don't know how many years to even consider something like an introspection based on the ideas I claim to hold. So this time lapse that our friend, uh, so you said that it made you see yourself in a different way. This can take actually many years and it's not not easy. Oh, of course. Nothing happens overnight. Nothing significant. Um, So I did a solo episode on this channel called Why Why I Began Calling Myself an Objectivist. And it was at late 20s. So a good 12, 13 years after picking up the fountainhead, late 20s and had been clean and sober for a a few years and reading the objectivist ethics, uh, the essay and, you know, and the book that it's part of is kind of what got me to like really see like why ethics are so important and like the objectivist ethics does not permit like playing with stranger you know mixing a little bit of altruism and a little bit of skepticism with your reason it's like no it's this or it's something else so that got me to really think okay i'm on board with this ethics i'm gonna go with this and that means the way i see it like okay then i'm an objectivist now um so it was never supposed to be like a uniform that i would wear it was kind of like i really see why this is why this is the thing uh i'm going with um, and Marilyn with 99 cents. Thank you for that. A, a guy in not in the super chat named rock said, I, uh, said, I hope you're not leaving the left to join the right. I don't think you need to worry about that with me. Um, but though some people, they would like us to uh, strongly, um, I think turn a blind eye to what's wrong with the right and make our life, make our entire mission. Our entire project is to beat the left, but I just, I don't think that's ever worked. I don't think Ayn Rand thought that is effective. I think she saw the left as winning by default, which was, I think, her exact words. The left wins by default, or maybe she said the socialists win by default, whichever it was. Um, as long as altruism is the moral code, is the moral code that people hold explicitly or implicitly, altruism means we can't really trust businessmen. Altruism means uh, my life doesn't really belong to me. Altruism means people to the left of me have a little bit of a higher moral standing than myself. And not only because I'm not that tall, but because of their moral uh, position, they're, they're taking altruism farther than myself. So it's altruism versus egoism, which is a very personal thing. And my, you know, it starts with me, the individual saying like, saying like, this is my life there again, enter personal values, you know, this deep uh, kind of soul searching that preceded and was involved with reading Rand that, you know, this is kind of what it all boils down to. It, it, it's an inside job. Um, did you ever think, Nikos, that 9-11 was conducted by the CIA and the Mossad? That sounds like something Are you, you, m- you might have. Are you kidding uh, me? Of course, of course, uh, openly. I mean, almost everyone in Greece did. Now, again, the, and, and how embarrassing the official line of the Communist Party was, we don't approve but we don't condemn. Mm. And the idea is because we don't know who is behind. So, and again, this was not like consider a conspiracy theory. In some ways, the Communist Party is always very careful not to sound too ridiculous. I know it might sound weird, but it is. So that was what most people got. Look, this was probably something, I mean, definitely we don't know the whole truth, but it was probably something which is... uh, which had something to do with an inside job. Maybe not Mossad because this makes no But who is to say Mossad, CIA, aren't these things kind of the same? So this was the this was the this was the this was the attitude. And again, it's the one thing in my in my life that I'm mostly embarrassed 
in retrospect, uh, I would say a same, not embarrassed. So the 9-11 thing, uh, of all the things that I could look back to, is the one thing that I'm most uh, uh, ashamed of. Yeah, and uh, the places I went uh, philosophically as a young teenager uh, make your position seem very rational by comparison in that like, I wasn't even entirely willing to admit that the World Trade Center was a real building, that, that reality itself is, is, is that, uh, you know, that everything is up for grabs, everything is up in the air and up for debate, and there's no conclusion to this debate. I mean, I went there, name it, you know, name it. You know, there's... Um, You know, there's a metaphor um, I got from the autobiography of Marilyn Manson. There's a there's a very 90s, uh, some would call nihilistic entertainer. Uh, he wrote an autobiography, which I read also in my early teens. And um, he mentions when they're in the studio, basically uh, not getting anything done. They're all very frustrated, hitting a lot of uh, writer's block. They were being produced by the a singer of Nine Inch Nails. Uh, he was producing their record. They're all very frustrated. And then the guitar player of the band walks in one day and he starts playing these very cliche 80s kind of uh, mini solos. Like he goes, hey, look what I look what I just wrote. Like, minu, minu, minu. Very generic and cheesy stuff. And the way the author Manson describes it, he says, uh, Twiggy, I think that was the gu guitar player's name. Twiggy had not listened to metal in the 80s. So he mistook his cliched noodling for originality. This whole story, just to say, I took my cliched positions for originality, just like if you were to show me, like, let's say you were completely shut off from pop culture the last 25 years, and you showed me, hey, look what I just created with this computer. And I'm like, okay, that's techno, you know, someone uh, started doing that in the 90s, right? And you'd say, no, 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 no one's ever done this. I would say it's, you know, it's, Very nice, good for you. I think there's a lot of money in what you've just discovered, but the problem is someone else came up with it. And I think philosophically, I thought I was, uh, you know, uh, peeling the onion and, and answering life's deepest questions. But like the more I learn about the history of philosophy and what had got me into, the, what had influenced me in that state, um, I realized I was really just eating up cultural products around me. Um, so anyway... That, that's uh, the other thing, by the way, that I thought I'm like something which is super radical. Mm -hmm. And I thought everyone else was an NPC. Whereas uh, actually my ideas was almost the same as almost everyone else in Greece, including people in the, in the right who say, well, the left, yeah, they're right morally, but you know, they don't have the right methods. So I was the ultimate, the ultimate NPC. But again, I thought uh, this was something like super original and something super, uh, super, super radical. Super chat from Rat Lover 10 pounds says, I like Biden and Jocko. I don't like Trump. I don't like Kevin Samuels. I want to find out more about non-superficial values in the fountainhead. And I want to learn more about objectivism. Well, that's nice. Thank you for the super chat. I just want to uh, highlight. We like Jocko Willings as well. And we made, I like Jocko Willings as well. And. We made a whole episode analyzing his uh, post-Afghanistan fiasco uh, mock presidential speech, which was a great speech. We sure did. Um, I want to just highlight the fact that most of this discussion here has had nothing to do with who to vote for and which political party is worse or better. I mean, 
It's uh, and, you know, every time I glance at the chat room, that's what most people are arguing about, like who to vote for or what's which party is worse or better. I mean, there's I think these are definitely important things to discuss, but that's not that's not the discussion that we're, we've been having. Right. Like we're talking about things much more fundamental than that, which I think quickly address capitalism versus non-capitalism or, you know, what happened on 9-11. Like these these questions become very easy to answer once we sort of find a healthy and rational approach to the world. Um, and that only can be found, I think, by having personal values that you're willing to uh, go to bat for. With that being said, uh, why don't we jump over to Clubhouse and see what some of our friends have to say. Coming up at seven, go ahead, do you have something? No, or... I was about to say, today you took the initiative. Uh, I came back from the uni 15 minutes before the episode so you it was uh, your idea and you ran with it uh, and I have to say I really enjoyed it so thanks yeah and as usual before we began you said something like I'm not sure what we're gonna how we're gonna fill up this time what are we gonna talk about and I said just sit back and leave the rest to me meaning not that I'm gonna do all the talking but I'll I'll get us talking all right good Coming up at 7 p.m. UK time, physics. Well, after we're on Clubhouse, then at 7 p.m. UK time, physics by phone with Dr. Amanda Maxim. And then at 8 p.m. UK time, it's HBTV, Harry Binswanger TV. Today, he'll be talking about Rand versus Hayek. Oh, what's there even to talk about, you might ask? I mean, they're both against the left. What can possibly drive them apart? Shouldn't we just hold, all hold hands and beat the left? We'll find out. Um, Ayn Rand, why would Ayn Rand have anything negative to say about Hayek? Was it, was it, wasn't, you know, wasn't she opposed to the left? You know, wasn't she opposed to the socialists? I mean, of course, I'm, uh, I'm kind of, uh, satirizing, I'm caricaturizing, uh, some of the positions that, uh, people, uh, voice, but of course, part of doing that means sort of exaggerating what they say as well. So, um, there's that coming up at 10 PM UK time, the new show that everybody loves. Method in Madness, uh, starring our friends uh, Ibis and some guy named Larry, apparently his name is, Larry. And um, I, they tend to, the last week they interviewed Ana Cargate. I don't know if they're interviewing somebody this week. I think that's the format. Oh, get, you'll never guess who they're interviewing. We've got him here interviewing him already. It's Nico Sotirakapoulos. All right. Indeed, yeah, it's about whether the rich are producers or parasites and why we'd think either way. And the subject is the rich, producers or parasites? They're parasites, obviously, aren't they? They just, all they do is sit in their office while a bunch of uh, hardworking men and women in the, you know, on the factory floor do all the work. Isn't that, isn't that right? Isn't that right? We'll find out. We've got a lot. To, guys, today is uh, one of the most uh, interesting days on the Internet. I mean, here on this channel, you really should consider becoming a member, not only uh, to get exclusive content access, but also to support this thing. I mean, help this exist. You know, uh, thank you all. Please uh, become a member at ironrandcenteruk.org. Is it? Link in the description. That's the point. Ironcenter.co.uk. <laughs> That's it. And then become a member. Enough with the filibustering, uh, uh, never-ending outro. Link in the chat room as well. Thank you, Nikos. And 